it's that somewhat weird week between Christmas and New Year's where it's hard to find people to get certain work done. But here at your favorite podcast, we never rest. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for December 27th, 2017. Before we jump into the chats with my two great guests, I wanted to make note of something since this is the last podcast before the turn of the new year. On January 1st, 18 states will see hikes in the state minimum wage, and that's a really good thing. Because you have to remember, the federal minimum wage is just $7.25 an hour, and that is a poverty-level wage. It should actually be close to $20 an hour. This is a point I've made repeatedly. If you looked at how productive workers have been over the last 30 to 40 years, think about that. The minimum wage at the federal level should be $20 an hour as opposed to the $7.25 an hour it really is today. Basically, we've been collectively robbed over time of the hard work of millions of people and the hard work that they've put in at work. And that's because the system functions like that. This is what the system does. It robs people. But when I looked at the hikes in the 18 states that I mentioned, I noticed something that was worth highlighting. And it's a lesson to everyone listening about the importance of doing politics and especially getting involved in campaigns around issues. The minimum wage hikes break down into two categories. There are those that are simply inflation adjustments, and there are those that are happening directly from the pressure from the people, mostly either from legislation or ballot initiatives. And It's that pressure from the people that has made the most difference. And I'm going to just give you three examples of those 18 states. First of all, California, which this hike will take the minimum wage up to $11 an hour. It's a 50-cent hike, and it's going to affect about 2 million workers, about 13% of the whole workforce. That came as a result of legislation, pressure from the people. In Washington state, the minimum wage will go up to $11.50, a 50-cent hike, and that'll affect about 12% of the workforce, and that too was a result of legislation, pressure from the people. But then if you look at Florida, and the minimum wage there will go up to $8.25, much lower than California and Washington, and only a 15-cent hike... And that will only affect 2% of the people working in Florida. That's just an inflation adjustment. That's not from something that was a significant hike because of pressure from the people on the legislature or through a ballot initiative. So the bottom line, the point I want to make here, is that organizing matters to millions of people's real economic lives. But if you're not turned on by candidates, and I get that, too many candidates are pretty unimpressive today, then consider at least digging into a campaign like one seeking to raise the minimum wage because that has real consequences. So now let's turn to my guests. As I have mentioned on and off when it's relevant, I was a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders in 2015 and 2016, and really the best part of that effort 
was meeting literally hundreds of amazing people all around the country. And I've had a number of those people on this podcast over the last year. People who were putting everything they had into the campaign. And one of those amazing people that I met is Marcus Farrell. And Marcus was the head of the African-American Outreach Desk for the campaign. And among the many great things about Marcus is that in the months after the campaign ended, he has never stopped trying to build the progressive presence within the African-American community. And also point out, he has pointed out, rightly so, how the broader progressive movement does not give enough attention. And when I say attention in politics, I mean resources, money, and time to mobilizing, organizing, and working in the African-American community. And I think it's pretty obvious that, and Marcus has pointed this out online in all sorts of social media discussions that I've watched and taken part in, the Democratic Party victory in the Senate race in Alabama, for Pete's sake, Alabama, was all about the big turnout in the African-American community, without which... Without that turnout, a pedophile, homophobic bigot would be headed to the U.S. Senate. So my good friend Marcus is now jumping into the electoral fray himself as a candidate. He's running for a state legislative seat in Arizona. You can find his campaign info at Farrell, and that's spelled F-E-R-R-E-L-L, Farrell 4, F-O-R, 24, which is the number of the legislative district. So Farrell424.com. And Marcus, before we get into some of the issues that obviously you want to talk about with voters, let's give my listeners a little bit of, if you will, an ABCs of this race. You're running in a legislative district in Arizona. And I looked at the map. It looks like it covers from kind of Phoenix. It goes eastward through Camelback over to Scottsdale, kind of in a corridor. And tell us a little bit about the nature of that district. You know, why, um, what is this district about? Right, so <clears throat> so our district goes from uh, South Scottsdale all the way over to basically the beginning of West Phoenix. Mm-hmm. It is the first or second um, most diverse district uh, in the, in 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 the in Arizona. Uh, in our district, you will find African European immigrants, African immigrants, uh, Latinos, African Americans, uh, White Americans. Uh, if you name it, it's here in this district. Um, uh, we are what Arizona could be. Uh, I, when you typically think of Arizona, you think of a red state that's slowly turning blue. Mm. Uh, this is probably the bluest uh, part of the of the state of Arizona. Interesting. And how long have you lived in the neighborhood? Uh, I lived in I lived in this area for five and a half years at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And was it? Did, is the diversity a historical thing? I mean, if you go back 20, 25 years, its diversity is as you described, or is it a more recent thing of the last you know, few years? So, I mean, you know, every area has its interesting past when it comes down to a race and the people who live here. Um, the neighborhood I live in is a historic district, right? Uh, it's, it's called the Willow Historic District. And it's a part of uh, what is sort of the jewel of, of Phoenix, and these are, these are our historic districts that are, you know, right north of downtown, all the way up to north north uh, north Phoenix. These what's historic for us is houses, homes that were built anywhere from 19 
you know, 25 and 1920 all the way up to 1950, right? Um, so this is a pretty new town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the area that I live in, you know, at one point, African-Americans weren't allowed to even, uh, in the 50s and 60s, African-Americans weren't even allowed to uh, visit the neighborhood I live in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that was until the 60s. We couldn't go anywhere north of uh, McKinley Street here in Phoenix. Um, and now that has changed. We can own, own homes here. But yeah, uh, Phoenix has a, a, a interesting historic past. But I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good past. past. Uh, the thing about Arizona in general is, you know, for a state that had nothing to do with the, the Civil War, uh, we just had arguments last year about um, removing civil war um, and Confederate monuments in the state of Arizona. Right. Um, and that shows you uh, ex- uh, exactly sort of the history of the folks that lived here. They weren't even a part of the civil war yet. They, some of these folks wanted to honor civil war folks. So that's the kind of state that we're in. It is definitely the Southern state of the West. Mm. And I know you, obviously, I said this in the introduction to this uh, segment that we, we know each other from the Bernie Sanders campaign. You were one of the most important organizers of um, the campaign, especially targeting people of color and, and minority communities. And I wonder what possessed you to decide to run yourself as a candidate, since this, that's a very different role than being an organizer. Right. Um, what I, what, what made me want to run was, was a, you know, a few things. Uh, first I'm a progressive. I believe in, you know, 99% of what Bernie, uh, stands for. There is, there, there is a rumor or there's a thought process in politics that you can't be a progressive and be a person of color. Like Mm -hmm. all people of color must be liberals, uh, neoliberals, right? Like all people of color must believe in the, uh, and uh, the DLC viewpoint uh, that uh, capitalism is the uh, democratic capitalism is the only way that African Americans and Latinos should be. And that's simply not true. Um, my experience on the Bernie Bernie's campaign and, and progressive campaigns before his campaign um, lets me know that you know I was thinking there is a way to explain to people of color uh, there's a way to, uh, to be a progressive and also be a person of color because progressive issues are people of color issues and and people of color almost naturally are progressive if you think about it just because of the uh, certain oppression that some of these folks have to go through whether you're latino and you have family members who are worried about daca and deportation mm-hmm. whether you're african-american and you're worried about uh police you know police brutality and systematic uh uh racism and economic uh injustice right uh, right. There's a way to combat these things and speak on it on a level of blackness, on a level of Latinoness, right? Um, that that I looked around and there's not many people doing. Uh, another way, it, maybe one could think about it, is that people of color supported a whole bunch of candidates who put forth, generally speaking, a neoliberal position. Of course, I know we're talking specifically about Hillary Clinton and using that lens in 2016, but. I, I do think that people of color are progressive, as you point out, because of the nature of the issues can be and that they're not necessarily inherently neoliberal, but it's the responsibility of, if we're talking about the Democratic Party or candidates, to be 
present in the communities of color and not just expect them to just show up, as I think lots of the Democratic Party people think, just to show up because they're loyal. Right. I mean, look, uh, there's loyalty, but that loyalty only goes but so far, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we can't win states with loyalty, right? right? We can't win states with Black and Latino super voters. We have to have a turnout of people who are, you know, have been disengaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, let's, I'm going to, I'm going to be real. Uh, I, you know, that's another reason why I ran because I can run my own campaign and decide where the resources that I want to go, I want to put my resources mm-hmm. toward. Uh, and that's very important. Um, typically, and this is, you know, this is a lot of campaigns. Folks haven't been ga- engaging African-American and Latino communities, not because they don't want to, because they don't know how to. Right. Uh, you have to you have to have consultants who have an idea of where that money goes, because to be honest with you, campaigns are just a big tug of war about where the resources and who gets paid. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you engage people of color, that means that you're going to have to diversify your consultants late. And that's something that a lot of uh, consultants don't want to necessarily do. Um, they like- want to be able to control where the resources are. And I, that's and that is a major reason why the Democratic Party has not been engaging its base for years. Right. And to add on to what you just said, and you and I have seen this, let's be honest, because let's be forward and upfront. Um, the Bernie Sanders campaign was not as effective as it could be. And certainly you look at it did not compete um, in the South, um, at least in a big way. And let's face it, African-American voters, especially in the South, are crucial for any Democrat who wants to win. Right. You're not going to win a Democratic primary without black voters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, you know, uh, we we could have we could have done better. Alabama shows you what happens when you engage. And, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, even the Doug Jones campaign had a hard time uh, really connecting with the African-American community. It's just that the resources uh, for the Jones campaign actually went to African-American communities and African-Americans started organizing themselves. Uh, because of the importance, uh, the importance of not necessarily wanting to have, uh, uh, you know, a pedophile as their, as, as their senator for the, for the state of Alabama. Uh, you, you have to engage the African-American community. You have to do it now. Uh, you don't have to spend all of your resources, but putting your best foot forward, um, having staff, uh, knocking on doors, uh, because believe it or not, African-Americans, are so disengaged with the political process that they don't care about, um, they're not going to come to a rally. Uh, they're not going to come to, they typically don't go to, you know, town halls. Mm-hmm. Uh, African-Americans want to, you're going to have to go and reach them at their doors. And that's the same thing with Latinos uh, 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 all across the nation. So, I mean, until we change our tactics, until, until we start putting uh, black faces uh, in leadership positions and Latino faces in leadership positions and actually making decisions through them and with them, uh, you know, folks are going to have a tough time uh, trying to win a primary, no matter how popular it is. You just cannot win a primary without African-American voters. It's not going to happen. And I remember, and I'll, I'll, maybe this will be the last point on sort of hearkening back to the 2016 race, just because um, we're talking about it. I remember early on in 2015, actually, when it just got started, when Bernie Sanders was just, you know, like 2% in the polls, I was down in South Carolina, and I was in a meeting that was 
headed by or the featured person was Cornell West. And it was essentially a dozen or 15 African-American community leaders from churches and um, groups that were engaging in, just in voter citizen stuff. And they were pretty mm-hmm. clear. They said, look, uh, Bernie Sanders could do very well in these places. And Cornell West reaffirmed, said, you know, it's it's not that um, people are against Bernie it's that, or pro-Clinton. It's that they, they're kind of they're not woke to use the terminology now, but the problem right. was, and it goes to your very point that you just made is that you have to invest the resources then both in terms of the faces that are out there, the consultants who are there, and also in terms of the tactics that are going to work in various communities and put the money there. And that didn't happen, I think. And I think that was the reason that um, many of those caucuses and primaries in the South Hillary Clinton, just because she was a brand, won those states by large, large margins and put Bernie way behind the delegate count so that by the time he came out West, I think the race was over. And it was, I think, really one of the main reasons he lost. It was not engaging the African-American community enough. Well, you know, here's the thing. We did, we did have, we did attempt, a small attempt mm. to, you know, to engage voters. We had a canvassing program, but um, you know, it, 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 you know, we, we didn't necessarily, uh, have enough time. Uh, and it wasn't enough funded people. enough. Did you, did you, you didn't yeah. have the resources, right? Right. Right. Yeah. We, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't fully funded. Um, um, but the, the more important thing is, is, uh, you have to keep it moving. Like you have to keep it going. Right. right. Uh, yep. you have to have, you have to, because once you build your name ID in one state, the next state's going to understand and see it and feel it. And, you know, we, we're starting to prove right now that you can, you know, you can be competitive by reaching out to African-American voters. Look, mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams, uh, a woman that I work for, mm-hmm. uh, I worked for when, when she's running for governor of Georgia. It would behoove any presidential candidate to reach out to a person like Stacey Abrams because the Georgia primary, the Georgia Democratic primary is, Fifty-five percent black women. Mm. And right? is she get is she Somewhere, getting, is she getting the kind of support that she should get from the, if you will, the party apparatus? Um, no. Oh. Uh, uh, she she the, the party apparatus is being neutral because she does have a a, a primary opponent. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: she is getting enough support from you know Black America and woke America right now uh, that you know I mean she's going to win the democratic primary. Right. And then, you know, and then she stands a very high chance of, because of the nature of the beast that is Donald Trump. Uh, he, she has a, a very high chance of actually becoming the first African-American woman that's governor of, of, of the state of Georgia, anywhere in the United States. Hmm. Um, you know, progressives need to attach themselves to people like that. Progressives yep. need to attach themselves to David Garcia in, in, in Arizona, who's going to probably have a record turnout of, of, of Latino voters. That's something that has never been seen before, right? Like, we, we need to embrace these people of color across the nation that are doing these things because they're doing grassroots work that some smart candidate should be willing to just attach themselves to and, 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 and reap the benefits if they, if they plan on running for president in 2020. So we went far into the sort of the big picture, national picture, just because you and I talk about this on and off all the time. But I want to circle back to you, to your campaign, and talk about, right. first of all, 
What has it been like for you as a candidate, the things that you found that you sort of knew were going to happen or, you know, something that surprised you because you actually hadn't been sort of, if you will, the, the main guy, the person that everybody wants to tug at and talk to? Um, the, the biggest, I have two big surprises. The first, the biggest surprise has been, you know, utilizing my platform, telling people my platform at the doors, especially white progressives that are, you know, and, and that live in my neighborhood, right? And, and receiving such uh, a positive feedback from, from my door knocks. Mm. That is the most surprising thing because I did not think that white folks would be willing to listen to my story mm. um, and, and hear me out. But, you know, folks want change. They want to see something different. Uh, the second biggest thing is how powerful being able to be in front of the microphone is. Uh, when you sit with your team and you craft talking points and you test them on, on the on the district, and you and you listen to what people say, and their reaction when you say the things that you know that you think is right, and folks actually agree with you. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful thing having the microphone in front of you. Um, something that I didn't have in, in the past, you know, as a, as a staffer, right? right. Uh, being able to express yourself. So as a candidate, that's 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 very surprising to me how how powerful that is. Um, it, as a candidate, it's been it's it's been very interesting. It's funny because as many campaigns as I've managed, uh, Jonathan, uh, as soon as I became a, a candidate, I forgot how to be a campaign manager. Uh, <laughs> I literally, yeah. Well, you know, I, I that's a good thing. That's a good thing because too often, too many candidates want to be both. They want to be the candidate and the campaign manager, and that's a recipe for disaster. Right, right, and I have a team around me. Uh, they're a young team. They're, you know, it's going to be a pretty diverse team. We're, you know, we have Latinos and African Americans and, and whites all supporting me uh, and all of, like on my team. Um, is I have a, you know, you can take Bernie's platform, add a little bit of a Latino on it, mm-hmm. add a little bit of black on it, and uh, you know that's what I'm pushing in the state of Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know, and since this is like one of the, the lowest states for education, you know, the education platform is something that all of the candidates are going to have to touch and have to figure out here in this state. So yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting at being the candidate. It's a very big difference. I know. And it's since lots of my listeners are potentially wanting to be candidates, it's, I always like to bring in people um, who are experienced in the sense of politics, but like yourself, they're in all of a sudden that leading role as the candidate. And it is very different. I think it's good for people to know that difference. And I thought one of the things you just said, which was quite interesting, was your point that you're going and knocking on doors. You're, that's the way you're trying to win this campaign. And I assume that that's an interesting process too. I mean, you got to walk up and introduce yourself and put yourself forward and, you know, hey, I need your vote. It's a, it's, it becomes addictive, Jonathan. Uh, it becomes addictive. <laughs> It does. Um, uh, I mean, and, and to any of your listeners who are thinking about running for, for office, you know, I spent uh, about close to 11 years running uh, political campaigns. And, um, you know, sometimes you look around and you, and you say to yourself, you know, who's the perfect candidate? And I said that to myself for years. I'm looking to work for the perfect candidate. And I've only found two or three perfect candidates. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stacey Abrams being one of them. Right. Um, but you know, there, you know, someone will have a problem with women issues or somebody might have a problem with people of color or someone might have a problem with being a pure progressive. So when you look around, make sure you look in the mirror also for that person. 
That's what I want to tell your your listeners. And once you look in the mirror, you might see the perfect candidate. And and as soon as you decide that you're going to run, you need to figure out your win number and you need to at least knock on that that amount of doors uh, yourself personally. Not not a team, but yourself. You need to get out, get out of your house and get out of your office and try to knock on as many doors as you personally can be, because that right there will set a precedent uh, with folks. And, and they're going to they're going to remember that you came by the house. That's the biggest response that I get right now from people in my neighborhood that I've knocked on their doors. Like, you came by. Thank you very much, Marcus. We're going to remember you. And, you know, I asked them to, to just remember my ugly mug on the flyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's huge. And I do think that you, what you just said in those few sentences is really so valuable. Number one, that knocking on the doors and saying, I need your vote. People go, it goes a long way to just winning those votes because oftentimes people aren't going to hear from all the candidates. And especially someone like you, who's quite um, honest and direct and genuine and authentic. And that's really important when people, you know, you're coming to come into someone's door. And the second point, this is a great thing to remember. I, I think a lot of people who I meet, you know, great activists, especially the ones I've met in the last year and a half, are hesitant to get into the fray because of all the, you know, the difficult stuff, you know, missing family stuff, not eating right, having to raise money and so on. But once you make that leap, it is addictive and it turns you on and you feel like, hey, I am the candidate for change. Yeah, it's um, it, it's and I think a lot of a lot of folks get this confused. Also, they think of being a candidate. The definition of a candidate is very centered on white male, mm-hmm. you know, cisgenderness. Right. Like uh, if you are a candidate, then uh, you're supposed to talk like this. And you're supposed to hold your hand in a certain way. You're supposed to have your speeches in a certain way. And all of that is bull. Throw all that out the window. Humans want to hear other humans nowadays. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing thing. No one wants the perfect polished politician anymore because as soon as you look like a polished politician, most people think you're a liar. Mm-hmm. Uh, be your authentic self. Uh, I don't plan on changing anything for anyone as much as my campaign manager hates that thought process. My thought process I don't plan on changing. I plan on staying the same Marcus Farrell that you will see uh, playing Madden with, with my with my nephew or, or, or hanging out um, at the park uh, uh, playing basketball. I'm going to be the same person at the doors. It's about what you want to bring to the table, the policies. And me as a progressive, I think it's time for more people to bring progressive ideas to folks straight at their doors. In Arizona, there's a bunch of Latino folks that have never heard anyone say to them at their door, I want to make Arizona a state that has a living wage. Mm. When I go and knock on doors in a Latino district, they have never, some of these folks have to get explained to what a living wage means because no one has ever knocked on their door. No one has ever said to them, you know, college in this state should be free if you graduate from high, from high school or you need to go to a trade school for free or we need to expand Medicare for all. Right. Like these are things that that people don't even bring these issues up at all and much less directly at their door. You become a powerful entity when you say that, you know, I can be your next state representative. I can be your next congressman. I can be your next city councilman with a progressive vision and you're at their door doing it. No one will ever forget the crazy guy that came by and said he was going to send my kid to college for free. Or at least help them, you know. And that's that's awesome. Um, 
So one of the difficult things that anybody comes up with when they're running is, let's face it, unless you're uh, personally wealthy and you can just write a check out of your bank account, I'm just going to tell people, I'm going to guess that Marcus is not one of those people knowing him and neither am I. Most people aren't. Right. You got to fundraise. And so how's that been? It's been fun. Um, uh, it, believe it or not, it's been fun for me because when you go through your cell phone, and you start calling people that you've known for years, mm. um, you know, you uh, and tell them what your vision is. Um, you know, most folks w- are going to be more than willing to cut you a, a check or, 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 or send you money. It's irritating. It, but, you, but if you really believe in your vision and you really believe in, in what you're trying to do, asking people for money to do that is not a problem. And it's very interesting in my case because. I've been working on the backside of politics for years. Mm. So, you know, most of the people I call are like, okay, well, how about I give you some advice on your campaign? And I'm like, nah, brother, I need, I don't want your advice. I want you to cut me a check. Mm-hmm. So you're going to, you know, you get to see if, if, if your vision is true. Everybody's not. So I want everybody to understand one thing. Bernie is an enigma because Bernie was the largest progressive to ever run for president. That means presidential campaigns automatically get money. Right? So, you know, the $27 model is cute, but if you're not running for president, then you need to tell people to max out to your campaign. You need to ask people to give you $100, $200 when you get on the phone with them, $300, $500, because we're, we're all not Bernie. Bernie had over a million donors um, that gave to his campaign. We're not going to have that same, uh, you're not going to have that same luck. What you can do is have a very progressive, view, make sure you fill out all of your endorsement sheets from everybody that you possibly can, contact everyone you can if you're a progressive, and see if you can get big organizations to either endorse your campaign or write you a check. But you have to be realistic about it. I don't want people to run around and think that they can be the next Bernie Sanders when it comes to fundraising, because that's not going to happen. You have to do it differently. And I assume that your you know, unabashed progressivism and really connects with voters. But I'm going to guess that to the extent that there's an establishment uh, in the Democratic Party in the state in Arizona, I guess they look at you and they're afraid of you. Um, To be honest with you, Maricopa County is a woke county. I got to give uh, Stephen Slugaki and my my county party uh, props. Um, They know it's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is the establishment folks understand that, you know, they need new blood. The district that I'm running in has never had a person of color uh, uh, in it before. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, in Arizona, there's only one elected African-American uh, in the state house. And there's two total. One one got assigned uh, uh, the position okay, because there was an opening. But there's never been an elected a person of color. Uh, African American outside of District 27. There's about there's a there's a lot of uh, Latino brothers and sisters, um, but in this district there hasn't been one. Now that doesn't automatically qualify me, but when you when we talk about the establishment and the uh, and, and and them being afraid, well, in this state, of course, there's always going to be a certain level of pushback. But you know we've had years of having a Democratic Party, so any vision within the Democratic Party is stronger than what 
has been going on recently. Uh, we've had a, you know, a, we've had a milk toast almost do nothing except the status quo vision of what it means to be a Democrat. So me being an unabashed progressive is literally me just saying something when a lot of other folks haven't said anything at all. And now to my other guest, who is also a candidate, this time for Congress. Just your basic, good, solid union man. Mark McKenzie is an old friend. He was for 25 years the head of the AFL-CIO in New Hampshire. And, you know, Mark knows everyone in the state of New Hampshire. He's a firefighter. He joined the fire department at the age of 21 in 1974 and eventually earned the rank of captain and then became a union official within his fire department local. He was also a delegate for Bernie Sanders, but unlike a lot of people, he's no newbie when it comes to progressive politics. I first met Mark in 1991 at a conference of union activists and progressives all of whom were in the Northeast, who were coming together to try to build closer ties in the progressive movement. And all of this was organized under the United Auto Workers, my union, the UAW leadership of a guy named Phil Wheeler, who was the director of the Northeast region. Mark is running in the 1st Congressional District, which is right now represented, in fact, by a Democrat, Carol Shea Porter, who decided not to seek re-election. And you can see Mark's campaign at Mark McKenzie, M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. That's MarkMcKenzieForCongress.com. Mark, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the campaign, you were a longtime firefighter. And I was once standing in line at a grocery store in New York City, and there were a bunch of firefighters, and they were loading up, you know, with like, five pounds of potatoes and, you know, all this massive stuff that we're going to bring to cook dinner at the firehouse. And one of the things I learned, and this kind of goes to the economics of people, is that they actually have to pay for that out of their own pocket. I had this idea that there was like a firehouse fund. So that kind of blew me away. Yeah, well, that's the case. It's always been the case in the fire service. And, you know, uh, maybe that's a good subject for the next uh, contract negotiation for people. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that this would be part of the budget for all firehouses. I I certainly, as a taxpayer, think that I would be happy to pay a few bucks or whatever it is to make sure that firefighters had some money to damn eat and, um, you know, rather than take it out of their own pocket. And then I thought, so what was your specialty? What did you cook? What was your kind of specialty when you were in the firehouse? I was always uh, the guy that cooked the soup on the on a cold day. So I I get over to the sink and pile a bunch of vegetables in it and broth and things like that and then fire it up. So it was always on the stove and it was always something that we look forward to, especially if we were out uh, half the night uh, on a cold night. So, Mm -hmm. 
Now, you have been, uh, we've been friends for a long time, and uh, I know your work as a person who has run the labor movement in New Hampshire for many, many years, and you have this enormous network of people and supporters and the work you've done on the ground. And I'm curious, the first thing is that, what have you seen that um, in New Hampshire, and especially in the district, that makes you think that there's a time of change coming where Democrats are going to do better, certainly in New Hampshire, but in your district? Well, I think that the economic message, uh, as you go around this district, the economic message and the, the, the policies and things that have been happening in D.C. have really, you know, fired people up. Uh, so they're looking right now for candidates. Uh, that's going to go forward, that's going to be strong and articulate, that's going to be able to really speak to the issues, which is uh, about working people and the kinds of things that they're facing. And, and but that's, you know, so those are the beginning of, of, of the kind of economic message that as we move around through the state, uh, it's important to people. And I think people are tired, quite frankly, working people are tired of working, you know, two and sometimes three jobs to make ends meet. Uh, and even though New Hampshire is a bit ahead of the curve in terms of the uh, of jobs and and income, uh, we still are in a place where there are hundreds and hundreds of people uh, that need to be connected up with work and jobs in New Hampshire. Well, and you've seen you've been living there, you know, what your whole life and working as a firefighter and working among unions and working people. But I assume that even though uh, you say that the little bit ahead of the curve that the desperation and the absolute way in which the economy is just screwing people, this is not a new thing for people. And it, it isn't a new thing just because Trump happens to be in office, right? This is something that goes back 10 and 20 years in terms of how it's built over time. Well, there's no doubt that, you know, uh, when the business community decided to get into politics in a big way, you know, when the Chamber of Commerce and, and other business agencies decided to jump in, they jumped in not to, for the sake of helping people move forward. They jumped in with the idea of dismantling uh, the protections for workers, for undermining uh, collective bargaining agreements and unions, for taking away the rights of people uh, in safety and health. And that's been the agenda. And unfortunately, I think that if you look, whether it's Trump or, or, uh, or other players over this, this past 20 years, but certainly Trump is accelerating this. I mean, people are just getting uh, getting, it, getting it day after day after day. And it's only beginning, I think, to catch up to people because the rate at which all this is being dismantled right now is almost more than people can absorb over, over you know, in a conversation with them. So the challenge, I think, for anybody who's running for office is to make them understand kind of where we are in this point in history. And then you know, be able to explain it to them, but more importantly, be, be able to encourage them to participate in the process that can change this and halt this. And a lot of people have never had to do this in their in their lives. And are you saying that um, the challenge is there because people have given up or people are just frustrated and they're not participating? Because I'm getting the sense that the what at least the mood is people are more engaged and they're pouring out to meetings more. There's a lot more people running for office. So are you seeing something different among the actual voters? Well, what I'm, what I'm, I mean, I think that voters are more engaged uh, in New Hampshire. We, you know, we have a pretty good 
you know, process up here and mm-hmm. people, you know, know politics because we, you know, it's in our face uh, every four years uh, uh, in New Hampshire. So they, they understand that the, the thing that I, that I am running into, and it, it's not new. I mean, it's something in dealing with as an advocate for years, you have to teach people how it is that they make change. I mean, it's one thing to go to a meeting and to listen to it and to stipulate the kind of the issues that, that, that we're all being affected by. The other thing is to figure out ways to be to do uh, the kind of work you need to do to be effective in, in making change and halting some of the things that are currently going on within the process. That I, th- that I think that there's a, certainly a core of progressive community in the state that's working on those things. But for many people who have never had to do this, have never had to come to that place and, and demonstrate and write letters and talk mm. to politicians and other elected officials, this is a, a learning curve for, for, um, for many people. So you're talking about the mechanics of things, the actually how you turn out the vote, how you make sure people are registered to vote, the fact that you have to actually get people to the polls and all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, we're talking, but more, more importantly, I think we're, we're talking about people understanding the issues and then being in a place where they, they know how to, uh, you know, how to affect change. They know how to come together to form coalitions, to demonstrate, to write letters, to, you know, to dog the candidates that come through uh, the state of New Hampshire. And I think, you know, I think you're seeing people getting more in tune with that and more capable of doing that. So you were an early supporter of Bernie Sanders in the state, and you were a delegate to the convention for Bernie Sanders. And so the thing that you and I have talked about a bunch, um, not just during this past campaign in 2016, but before that, is the damn Democrats. I mean, you would think, and you being a labor person, seeing that on the ground, that this stuff has been almost handed to a party that should stand for working people and should be at least on the agenda. If you look at what's written down, there are four things that regular people should want, and yet the Democrats seem to always fumble it. And so what do you think about that? And how is your race and how, what you're trying to advocate, trying to reshape what the party stands for? Well, there's, um, you know, I think everybody's, it's pretty clear to people that the Democratic Party uh, lacks the kind of message that they need to, uh, to bring people uh, together. What do they stand for? How do they develop the message? And, and as everybody's saying, you know, we've, we've enough with beating up Trump. Everybody's done that. I think they've got that out of the system. I think the question is now what the Democratic Party stands for, um, how they're going to advocate uh, those positions. And they're, they're, they're struggling with that. There's no question about it. My campaign, because I've been doing this work for a lot of years, I understand uh, what, a, what a Democrat should be standing for and what they should be fighting for. Mm-hmm. And, and it is the workers of this country built the Democratic Party. The issues that are important to us were the should be and were in the past the core issues of the Democratic Party, and so I think that my candidacy brings that kind of attention uh, to that as well. Um, but my but the candidacy also you know you can't just be that the epic you have to branch out and, and and understand some of the other issues in this campaign and certainly you know the the environment in which we live the 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 jobs of the future you know how people are going to be insured for uh, health insurance uh, and, and other things are really core issues of this campaign as well. What is it? What is, if you walk up to an average Democrat and you ask them today, what, what do you stand for? 
I think they're waiting for somebody to tell them in some respects. I think they know it in their heart, but they have not been able to articulate it. And we can't just have a candidate that's going to sit in the middle anymore. Those days are over with. You can't expect the Democratic Party just to coalesce around the people in the middle. Uh, you need somebody that's going to go out there and really challenge them and challenge the voters to say, OK, this is who we are and what we stand for. That's what my candidacy is about this time. Now, I assume that as you've gone around the district and talked to people about your campaign, but about the issues, tell me how many times people bring up as the first thing on their mind, Russia. They, they you know, there's no question that's out there. But I think for the most part, uh, people are more concerned about, you know, everyday issues and, and things that directly affect their lives in the communities and in the state. Do they have health insurance? they have pension benefits? Are their Social Security going to be okay? And is their Medicare going to still be there? Those are the kinds of things, uh, you know, kind of on the ground here right now. I think overarching, there is a sense of Russia, but it's not something that, that we bring up uh, that's brought up in uh, discussions. Well, the reason I bring that up is to your point that you made before about what the Democratic Party should stand for. And it seems like uh, there's an outsized obsession with that. And honestly, I think I'll say for myself, I think there's going to be very little to that at the end of the day. And it's not clear to me how that advances the idea of the Democratic Party standing for working people, you know, fighting for the $15 minimum wage, for Medicare for all, all those kinds of things that people care about, you know, at their kitchen table, if you will, when they actually are reaching into their wallet to find that extra dollar, especially around the holiday time. I mean, that seems like a lot of rubbish that's distracting from what real people are really talking about. Well, that's right. And, you know, if you're going to build a foundation, you don't build it on shaky ground. And uh, you can't build it on the unknown. You have to build it on who you are, what you know, and what the Democratic Party should stand for. That's the footing that we should start from and build from. And I agree. I think the stuff around uh, Trump, I think it's, you know, if it's true, and many people believe it is, and certainly the evidence would would suggest. But in the end, we're not going to go to a campaign and be on the streets in, in New Hampshire arguing about whether or not that occurred. That, that's not what the people want to hear about. They want to hear about what it is, that how we're going to do it, what we're going to do, and how we're going to move forward uh, for the next cycle and put new people in, in the Congress in the United States. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about domestic issues because as both union members, this is the thing that motivates us directly. But there's a connection there to foreign policy. And one of the things that you've always been part of is the social justice and peace movement. And tell me a little bit about what your view is about this ongoing war that we're facing and the money that's being poured into Afghanistan, for example. Well, there's, there's, this is a war that's gone on nearly uh, 17 years. Uh, the, the reality is that uh, in the not too distant future, if we continue to do this, the people who are not even born at the time the war began are going to actually be in, in combat in a, in a very dangerous place in the world. The Afghanistan war is robbing us of, um, of the resources that we need to build to rebuild this country and to plow into the things that are important. But beyond that, and most importantly, it is taking away the lives of, of people every single day. Not only is it uh, soldiers dying on, on, in that, on that ground, but there are thousands of people who in this country today have come home and then are injured 
uh, and have changed their life mm. because of, of that war. The question is, how much longer? Mm. How much longer are we going to be in a, in a battle uh, in a country in which we don't seem to have any, any thought process or any way of getting out? that we continue to plow billions and billions of dollars into this war. We continue to send the people to there to, to die. And, and not only the people in this country, but in Afghanistan, the, the number of people who have died as a result of this. When is enough enough? And I think it's time to stop the bloodshed in that country, to stop that war, to bring our people home, and to put the billions of dollars we've been spending there back into our economy to do the kinds of things that the people of the United States want, which is good health care and good jobs and infrastructure improvements and clean air, water, and, and the ground in which we, uh, we grow our food. So those are the kinds of things that we should shift back to. And it, it, it dovetails pretty perfectly with the conversation we just had about the Democratic Party, because as you point out, this has been going for 17 years. And so, yes, it's true that this started back in the Bush years, but Obama ex- continued to prosecute that war as aggressively as anybody. And so you've got to really a fight, first of all, in the Democratic Party to convince the party to stop supporting that war. And there's no question about that. And again, this is these are the core issues that not a lot of people are talking about. But it's certainly, you know, we need to talk about it because we, we as, as long as we're it, we're there with no end to it. It's the money and the resources being plowed into that war uh, are gonna are gonna rob us of the kinds of things that we need. The money that we need, the resources we need to rebuild the country. The Democratic Party needs to start thinking about what is happening in the world that's causing us to, to uh, undermine the policies and the, and the dreams that people have about the country and about where we should be. And so what's an interesting conversation that you've had with uh, somebody, a voter, that really made you kind of your head snap up and say, wow, is there anything that particularly happened so far on the campaign trail that's worth telling people about that's really what symbolizes where people's heads are at? You know, I think there there are two things uh, over the last uh, month or so that that have uh, you know that have kind of hit me in a different way. I was at a house party a few weeks ago, and a, and a woman said to me, "Where was that? Said, Where, know, what, what town was that in?" It was in it was in Manchester, actually, mm-hmm. a house party in Manchester. And the woman the woman uh, uh, said to me, you know, after I got talking about the labor movement and all of the things that that have happened, she said, "Well, what about me?" She said, "I can't." The way the work is structured today, I can't get into the labor movement. I can't be a union member. And in a, and in a certain way, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous, maybe, or, or frustrated when I hear you say that over and over again, because how do you speak to me, a person who, who doesn't have access to those things? And so I think it makes you, you know, it makes you reflect about the nature of work today and the right. fact that many people don't have that opportunity in the way that was structured. And the other thing that uh, I was with a couple of um, uh, veterans over in the uh, in Exeter uh, a couple of weeks ago, and and you know they said we, we you know we're knocking on doors, and we do it a lot. They said, and what we want right now is not to n- not to uh, talk to people, but talk with people, and to and to start a dialogue about how we how how we as a, a community as a state. Are gonna are gonna change the dynamic of uh, of the politics in the state. So it's it's kind of a refiguring. He, he said, I talk to people 
not necessarily when there's always campaigns. He says, I knock on doors with friends of mine, and we talk to them as a community of representatives. And he said, there is very little, very little time for us to come together and to have those kinds of discussions about moves us forward. So I think there's a place to talk about this stuff outside of the campaign. And the campaign becomes one of the tools that we use to really advance the uh, interests of people uh, in the state. Yeah, that point you made about um, the woman who felt like, well, I don't get any of the stuff that unions got, union members got, and so it's hard to relate to. That's really quite important. And I remember actually um, during the transit strike in New York City, and I've heard of this elsewhere, um, the people who were not in unions were upset or opposing, or at least not in solidarity with people who are striking mostly to save their health care, their pensions. And the reason they were sort of feeling, why should I stand up to try to fight for stuff that I don't even get? And so people are feeling resentful yeah. towards the other parts exactly. of the working class. And that's, that is where we've now, class warfare has been quite effective, which is pitting one group against another, either explicitly or not, where people feel like, wait a minute, why are you on strike for healthcare pension? I don't get that. All right, exactly. That's exactly what this woman was saying. And, and it's a, you know, it's something you have to think about because that's the nature of the, of the world in which we live today and the jobs out there don't, don't make it easy, but more importantly, the structure in which we operate is rigged against workers who try to do anything right now. We it has been for years. But I assume one positive way, and I'm sure you've done this, is to say, well, we need to make sure that you do get this because everybody should have that. that that's you know that's a cornerstone really of the campaign. There's you know uh, everybody you know dignity, respect. Everybody deserves a pension. Everybody deserves good wages. And I think the more that we can uh, raise that, the, the more that people are interested in coming together in a collective voice, it doesn't always have to be on, on, in the labor movement. There are other ways that you can do that, but you got to stand up and fight for it. Otherwise, otherwise it's never going to happen. And that's, that's what the struggle of the labor movement has been about. And other people want to change things. They got to, they got to be willing to put themselves on the line get out there and, and, and do what needs to be done. And one of the things that I bring to this debate and this campaign is a history of having done that and been at the forefront of social justice movement for years in New Hampshire. I know how to change things. I know how to make things happen. I know how to take people that don't support us in, in, uh, in the Congress of the United States. We know how to get rid of those people. And so that's what I bring to this campaign. And I'm going to hit the ground running. You know, I know these issues. I've been engaged with these issues for a long time. So when I go to D.C., it's not going to be about uh, having to, a big learning curve in terms of, of having to learn about the issues that are important to working people. I'm going to go there, hit the ground running, and be part of a, an effort to change this country. And now it's time for our Robber Baron segment. And we're going to go across the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, to find our Robber Baron of the Week, Jeff Fairburn, who is the chief executive of a company called Persimmon. And that company essentially is a builder of homes. 
And recently, the share price of that company was going up, 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 thanks to an essentially a taxpayer-backed scheme. That's right. The taxpayers of the UK were backing a scheme to support the company in what was known as a help-to-buy plan. And essentially what happened was the Treasury of the United Kingdom would provide a loan worth about 20% of the value of a property. The buyer would also provide about 5% of the deposit of their own funds to buy the property. And that would essentially create the ability on the individual's part to buy the house and Persimmon would then pocket the money and build the homes. Well, what happened? Jeff Fairburn, the chief executive of the company, got a 100 million pound bonus. That's 133 million US dollars bonus, essentially funded by taxpayer money in the UK. And that's why Jeff Fairburn is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my two guests, Marcus Farrell and Mark McKenzie. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Please become a financial supporter as we move into 2018. Support us in whatever way you can so we can continue to bring you in 2018 the candidates, the issues, the information that you have been getting for a whole year that we love to bring you and we could use that support. Look forward to having you back actually next year.